Welcome to the New Books Network. From Cited Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Gordon Caddick. As you may or may not know, the name of our podcast is a play on words. It's playing on the term arts and letters. That's kind of a catch-all term for the cultured intellectual types and the worlds that they inhabit. The dart part is referring to the fact that we are Canadian, because here in Canada, a dart is a slang term for a cigarette. So we are kind of doing a send-up of the world of arts and letters. Still, despite our gentle jokes, we read an awful lot of books for this show. But lately I've been hearing maybe that is just because of my slow, slow brain. Reading books is a very cheap way to, I guess, entertain. I wouldn't call it entertainment because my brain is far too advanced. I'm too smart to read. I know you're sitting there and go, smart people read. No, I need action. I need constant chaos in my life to feel content. I need to be driving a supercar and fucking fighting, fucking a bunch of hoes and champagne and going crazy. I can't just sit there, oh, oh, and the pirate on the boat. It's for, it's for people with slow brains. That is Top G influencer Andrew Tate. Him and his brother were just released from a Romanian prison and placed under house arrest. They are facing charges of rape and human trafficking. If you don't know about Andrew Tate, where have you been? He's become one of the most famous people on the internet. And he's done this, well, mostly by hating on people, and perhaps most of all, hating on the fans who love him. Most of you are worms. You don't do anything important. You're just living in your shit life, living your little dirt, just sitting there wriggling, hoping an eagle doesn't come along to fuck you up. A worm is absolutely not really useless. I've never heard of a story of valor that involves a worm. Tate is also especially hateful to women. He is actually a self-described misogynist. And his basic message to young men is this. Keep your women in line, get money, spend money, and also join Hustlers University. You too can be a top G if you enroll in Tate's school, which actually looks a lot like a multi-level marketing scheme. There is nothing new about Tate's grift or his repulsive ideology. What is new is the fact that he has become enormously popular and enormously mainstream, especially with young boys. Teachers have been saying that kids in their classrooms are often spouting his hateful rhetoric. But it's not just Tate. Tate is representative of something that's broken, something that's broken in the hearts of men. Why are men flocking to him? or to Mike Cernovich. When Cernovich isn't spouting his far-right conspiracy theories, he's just giving his followers self-help. In the guerrilla mindset, we have different chapters. Self-talk, framing, movement, mood, focus, lifestyle, posture. So big picture is you got an identity, right? Who are you? Who am I as a person? Those existential questions. And the great thing about life, about being a person, is you can define your own identity. 
From the gorilla mindset to Jordan Peterson's 24 rules for life, all these right-wingers seem very interested in helping young boys get their shit together. And these boys seem to be responding. Are you in an unmanageable position now, though, as far as, like, responding to people? Oh, I can't, like, I try to respond to people, but I can't. Yeah, it's not possible. No, it's not possible. And it's too bad because people are writing me very heartfelt, long letters telling me, you know, their experiences with the authoritarian left or the way they've been, you know, cornered in, in one way or another or or how starting to clean up the room changed their life. That's quite fun because it's something I always tell people to do instead of going out and protesting. Jesus, I just can't stand that. Cleaning up the room? Yeah. As one of those scary authoritarian leftists, I am obliged to point this out. Peterson's message here is very typical of these guys. It is not about structural solutions to whatever problems boys are facing. It is just individualized. That is the whole point. Clean your room. Also, clean your diet. There's a growing chorus of male health influencers and so-called bro scientists. People like Tucker Carlson's fave, the raw egg nationalist. Nationalist, thanks so much for coming on. Why is it, so your position as articulated in the tape we just played is, it's better to be strong and healthy than to be weak and unhealthy. Why is that so threatening to the people in charge? Well, thanks for having me, Tucker. I think it's threatening for a number of different reasons. And, uh... One of them, at least, is because illness is big business. What is the crisis you are trying to address? What are people doing wrong with what they eat and with their day-to-day health? Well, I suppose, really, uh, really, my principal target is the crisis of masculinity. Principally, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get people to take control of their diets and health as a means of ensuring their physical and mental sovereignty. I think that governments foster dependency, they foster weakness, weakness is praised. So to take control of your life now, to take control of what you put in your body, has become a revolutionary act, I think. You too can join the revolution if you buy his cookbook. That's $34.89 USD. I sure hope you like eggs. But if that's not to your taste, how about trying out what this guy's having? What is up, my primals? And this is what Liver King is having for a snack today. Bull balls. And you bet your balls, I'm going to eat every single testicle right here. A wheelbarrow full of bull balls. Liver King shtick is not just weird diet advice, though it certainly is that. But for Liver King, this is something a lot bigger. This is a way to stop the hurt. I couldn't be more grateful to know my fight, my unite, my purpose, my passion, where to point my energy, because people are living a life of hurt, hate, suffering, struggle, and there's a better life to live, and it can be achieved through ancestral living. And so now this is what Liver King is having for dinner. I got lamb shanks. I got a whole feast protein shake. I got raw bone marrow, raw testicle, raw liver. This is called the King Special. If you can't do this, get yourself a ball of King to dominate in life. I got a skillet of kidney. I got carbs. I got tzatziki sauce. And I got the Liver King bar. And this is what the Liver Kings have for dinner today. Liver King, out. If that's just a little too alpha for you, there is a gentler style of men's health influencer. This one comes from closer to home. Vancouver's own Will Blunderfield. Blunderfield is a yogi, singer, rewilder, practicer of something he calls sexual kung fu, and also urine therapy. But he'd probably tell me I shouldn't call it that. It's not 
it's human juice. It's human juice. Just having my midstream, I pissed the first part. Usually I do the whole thing, but I don't feel like eating or drinking that much urine, just a little bit. I just flooded my body with superfoods, and I shone my scrotum with uh, 660 nanometer wavelength, as well as 850, going right into those spermatic cells. And so I'm going to drink my piss to reabsorb all those expensive organic superfoods that I get from Purium. Use my code UrbanYogi, all one word, at ishoppurium.com. Mm. Masculinity is just getting weirder and weirder and weirder online. We are way past mere misogyny and sexual predation, though I have to say that's still there too. But now we've also got bro science, ball tanning, ball eating, piss drinking, and who knows what else. If you're not man enough for that, you can just buy their supplements. Today on Darts and Letters, we try to make sense of the new manosphere. I should tell you before I get going, though, if you are looking for outright condemnation, you're not going to hear it. I could indeed spend this entire episode shocked by their misogyny, debunking their science, outing their grifts, and critiquing their romantic delusions about nature and about the past. That would all be fine, but no. If you're a darts listener, I have faith in you. I just don't think there's any risk that you're going to fall for what they're selling. Instead, I'm actually going to give them at least a teeny bit of credit. I think they're clearly responding to something real that young men are dealing with. If it wasn't real, this shtick wouldn't be as popular as it is. So let's ask an uncomfortable question. What might they be getting right? Why is the manosphere so popular, so effective? And most of all, what should the left do to respond? Or maybe the problem is that the left just hasn't responded at all. I'll talk to the enormously popular socialist streamer, Vosh. Vosh tells me that the left is partly to blame for people like Andrew Tate, because we've chosen to ignore the issues facing young men. But we can't make that choice any longer. I don't think we have the luxury of making that choice. We're also talking about the bedrock of the modern far-right movement. Also, from a purely humanitarian perspective, a person being white or upper middle class or kind of annoying online doesn't mean they're any less deserving of living a happy life. Then we'll put the new manosphere into a wider intellectual history. I'll turn to some famous sociological texts that help us understand what exactly men are complaining about. One of the books we'll read, sorry, Andrew Tate, but we will read David Reisman's The Lonely Crowd. I will discuss this blockbuster from the 1950s with Columbia Journalism professor and New Yorker staff writer Nicholas Lehman. Conformity is the big negative word for the classic sort of mainstream 1950s liberal. If the typical American becomes a lifelong employee in a suit and tie, you're already in trouble because that's not what America is. That's a national crisis. That economy is gone. And so we have new sociological theories and new masculine anxieties. What is a man to do? Lehman takes us on an intellectual and cultural history of male angst. But first, Annie Kelly from the podcast QAnon Anonymous. Annie's been tracking this whole world in their fantastic new miniseries. It's called Man Clan. 
All that and more, so stay tuned, my primals, and we'll teach you the secret to the Alpha Darts grind set. Spoiler alert, it is mostly just reading books. I'm Gordon Kaddick, and you are listening to Darts and Letters. If you're new to the show, we are a left show about politics and about culture, but we look at those things through the lens of experts, academics, intellectuals, and pseudo-intellectuals, like this episode. This begins a new series that we're doing on something called the radical imagination. On these episodes, we're mostly going to be looking at troubling new ideologically heterodox thinkers. We'll look at strange influencers and strange intellectuals who are now suddenly popular. And we will be asking, how did the failures of neoliberalism get us here? And how can the left get us out? If you like what you hear, hit that subscribe button, tell your friends, drop us a review. And if you really, really like it, consider supporting us on Patreon. We are at patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. Retainer of semen and lifter of weights. He is wild, hairy, dominant, breathing into his balls and bonding with his bros. And more than anything, he charges you monthly for his content. That was the introduction to Man Clan, produced by Annie Kelly and Julian Field. Man Clan is a fantastic new miniseries from the podcast QAnon Anonymous. If you don't know, that podcast looks at the internet, the far right, and conspiracy culture. I called up Annie Kelly to help me understand these new male influencers. Turns out that before all this, she actually studied the early manosphere when she was a PhD student. She looked at the pickup artist and the Gamergate types. In those early days, the manosphere was really forming their political program. That program came to be known as the Red Pill. But now Annie tells me things have gotten a lot more inventive. The way that the manosphere has moved to the influencer model is it really feels like it's had a creative flourishing in lots of ways because before these places were always so community-based. They were on forums or blogs, often with comment sections and things like that. So there was a kind of real social strictness, I think, in how you could express yourself. And In my work, I sort of found like lots of ways that people would kind of play with this kind of quite oppressive understanding of masculinity, even as, you know, they reasserted it in lots of ways. But I think one thing that's been really interesting about the influence model is you've seen, as you say, this kind of, yeah, this kind of embracing of, I guess, more new age, I would say kind of traditionally feminine ideas the ideas and themes that they're picking up on and evolving for their audience often come from like quite feminine spaces and kind of new age health and nutrition. I think like at its core and the way I see a lot of these folks is like they really are responding to the disempowering nature of modernity and industrial capitalism. Mm. Like when they talk about men being like stunted or disempowered Mm. or like disconnected, isolated, like all of this is true, right? Yeah. So it's like they actually are responding to something that's happening to them structurally. 
But as you do a really good job in the podcast, whenever that comes up, you make really clear that when they're offered the opportunity to then reach for that structural explanation, which is staring them right in the face, they never take it, yeah. right? It's always individualized. Mm. So why, why do you think they, they never take it? Is it just because like we're leftists, so that's what we look for and they just can't see it? Or do they like really want to avoid it? I think in a weird way, it kind of comes back to the whole model of these influences, which is that ultimately if they start pointing to structural problems, it remains somewhat out of their audience's control. Right. Yeah. Whereas kind of self-improvement, you are just simply not an alpha, simply not alpha enough. It means that the problem is something that the audience member can fix simply by watching more videos, by consuming more content. And, you know, some of the things, I think some of the cleverer influencers actually will point out this model to their audience, even as they're selling it. Do you know? Mm. So I think some of them who are, you know, a bit younger, a bit more au fait with kind of like ironic kind of play with their audiences will often say, you know, you're not doing self-improvement right now. You're just watching a, a video of mine. You're making me rich. So right. it's like this kind of play, this kind of ironic um, teasing their audience. Right. Oh, they hate their audience. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like that's part of the, that's part of their appeal because their audience hates themselves, right? Mm. I mean, maybe, not, maybe I'm psychoanalyzing too much here, but <laughs> like some of these Tate videos where he's just like so objectionably like mean to his like most ardent followers, mm. is, it strikes me as something I could never enjoy, but people seem to. Yeah, I think people respect it as honest, do you know? Mm. It encourages that parasocial relationship because if you think about your very closest friends, they're not nice to you all the time, right? They kind of actually bust your balls a bit and like take the piss out of mm -hmm. you. And I think that is something insidious that lots of these influencers have figured out. They don't actually have to be nice. Some of their audiences kind of like it a bit more when they're not because it feels more real, <laughs> um, even though it is just a strategy as we're talking about. What makes this such a potent space at this particular like historical juncture? Is it purely a sort of social media phenomenon? Are there some underlying structural things that are mounting at this particular moment? It's probably a combination of a bunch of things. What is your sort of, what's the show's prevailing theory as to why this is so popular suddenly? Yeah, I mean, it's a question that I obviously think about a lot. I've got a, an answer, but I think it's still quite fluid. Generally, I kind of try to point to the things outside the internet because it's really easy just to point at the internet and say it's fucked everything up, do you know? But I sort of think, yeah, Silicon Valley venture capitalists obviously have been irresponsible with our society, but they weren't the ones who were elected to be responsible with it. So, you know, I point to, I think, things particularly for young people, which have been proven, I think, historically to create even before the internet existed to kind of create a demand for, I guess, more radical politics. So yeah, things like economic depression, economic crashes, rising cost of living, depression, apathy about the future. All of these things I think, you know, are also really important in terms of creating a market, in terms of creating a desire for this kind of content. The precarity that young people face, I feel like that's such an over riding element of this where it's like 
these influencers are telling you like how you need to take care of yourself because no one else will do it. And like, that's true. Like no <laughs> yeah. one else is taking care of these young people. So I think the kind of really kind of vicious dog eat dog world they reflect, it's sort of like the id or whatever, mm. but, but it is, it is kind of the world that we live in. Yeah, I think that's really true. And I should add an important caveat because, of course, whenever you say this, somebody will say, well, actually, the people who are drawn to these social spaces, to these influences, tend to be the least economically precarious groups. And I think that is important to point out. But economic anxiety doesn't actually straightforwardly mean you are poor or you are in poverty. Yeah, it's a kind of more complicated feeling about the fear of losing status or the fear of kind of slipping down a rung in the economic ladder, which I think is actually probably going to affect people from a middle-class, college-educated background more. So I think that is alongside the fact that these places are incredibly off-putting to anyone who is not white and male. I think that does tend to be why they are drawn to, I guess, not just manuscript politics, but radical right politics. The kind of uh, dashed expectations that's just as potent. Mm. I think that's its point is really well taken. So how do we talk to them and maybe de-radicalize them or maybe if that's not doable or if that's too difficult, stop other people from that may have sympathies from going down this kind of rabbit hole? Because when we discussed earlier offline, you told me something that I've been thinking about ever since or you said, well, the people that I've met that left the Manosphere are mostly communists. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that has left me with such optimism. <laughs> like, tell me more about that. Yeah. So I guess, you know, particularly when I was writing very high profile pieces about the alt-right and stuff, you know, that drew me a huge amount of attention. Much of it, very bad, <laughs> you know, <laughs> much of it pretty ugly. But one thing that it did give me, which I am really grateful for, was I think more attention from people who were either in the manosphere or the alt-right or, or exiting those spaces. And um, I think were curious, were flattered, were intrigued by the fact that an academic was was looking at these spaces and struck up conversation with me. Uh, I mean, there's two data points, uh, which I really want to be very clear. This was not a scientifically gathered sample. This was literally just the people who DM'd me on Twitter. So you can't draw any conclusions from it. But yes, nearly all the people who had exited those spaces, I would say had swung very far left, if not outright communist, you know, socialist, or I guess in America, they call them Bernie bros. And yeah, well, quite a lot of them, when I was talking to them about, you know, what made them change their mind, most people's stories didn't really have a a neat realization. There's not kind of, you sort of hope for that kind of wonderful road to Damascus moment of, and then I, then I, my, my worldview shattered and crumbled all around me. But most people, it was a bit, bit slower. They gradually just found it a bit more annoying. They became a bit more disenchanted and, you know, they started seeking other perspectives. Quite a lot of them had a relationship of some kind, I think, with a woman. And I want to be really clear, I don't even mean like a, I don't mean like a sexual relationship necessarily. I think one or two people I spoke to, it was actually online friendships with a woman that I think probably began just like complicating 
that incredibly black and white worldview when it comes to relationships between the genders, to interactions between the genders and the power differentials and stuff, which is like all incredibly, you know, you're either being, you know, dominated or you're submissive. You're um, either winning or you're losing, which of course isn't really how most relationships work, do you know? But I want to be really clear. I always have to do this when I, I say this. I am not suggesting to women out there, you know, go and hug your local incel, like go and, <laughs> you know, you're, you're the key. I think it's much more complicated than that. But I think the research that has been borne out on, on these kind of de-radicalization journeys is that it often does take a relationship with somebody who cares about them, male, female, anybody, do you know? But yeah, no, I mean, I brought up the, the you know, how many of them were turned communist thing, because you said, you know, does the left need to be doing more? Mm-hmm. And I guess that being my one unscientifically gathered data point kind of makes me think a bit like maybe the left are the only people who, other right. than these predatory manosphere grifters, do you know, who are, I wonder if maybe acknowledging the, the central malaise, the central complaint that kind of lies at the the heart of this kind of discontent. That was Annie Kelly of the podcast QAnon Anonymous. You can check out their series Man Clan at patreon.com forward slash QAnon Anonymous. The first episode is free and I will link it in the show notes. Annie and I talked for much longer, but there was just so much in this episode we couldn't fit it all in. So if you want to hear more, if you want to learn about how Man Clan came about and what they've found so far, I highly suggest you check out the full conversation. We will post it on the Darts and Letters YouTube channel, and again, I will link it in the show notes. This may seem slightly far afield, But we just had the 20th anniversary of the invasion of Iraq. So I was actually thinking about Iraq and the whole war on terror period as I made this episode. Now, during that period, we had this really reductive way of looking at the world. Either you're with us or you're with the terrorist. And really, it was a crime to look for any kind of nuance outside of that dichotomy. I remember a perfect illustration of this in Canada. We had this thwarted terror attack under Prime Minister Stephen Harper. And in a press conference, this journalist asked Stephen Harper a very astute question. In this case, we have another example of men, young folks becoming radicalized here in Canada. At what point is it okay to start talking about the root cause of these cases? Um, I thought this was brilliant. Like, let's just figure out what is going on with these men, right? I mean, it was a real invitation to honest sociological analysis. But unfortunately, that invitation was just quickly rejected. Uh, You know, this is not a time to commit sociology, if I can use uh, an expression. It's time to treat this. These things are serious threats, uh, global terrorist attacks, people who have agendas of violence uh, that are uh, deep and abiding threats to all the values that our society stands for. Stephen Harper's answer was widely mocked. That expression to commit sociology, it became a kind of academic joke. There's even a sociology blog called Commit Sociology. And sociologists wrote withering blogs and op-eds. So rightly, I think, sociologists 
held their ground. They said, yes, in fact, we are going to commit sociology, even for the most detestable people. And I think this is actually just like a wider position for people who oppose the war on terror. When I debated this with my friends, I said, listen, I'm not excusing terrorists, but I do think we need to understand the root causes of their violence. So back to Andrew Tate and the new manosphere. There is one prominent socialist who has been asking these kinds of questions. He's been asking, what are the root causes of their popularity? I'm talking about Vosh, the mega-famous socialist streamer. On a bunch of his streams, he has been talking about male loneliness, meaninglessness, malaise, mental illness, and economic precarity. And he's been saying it's time for some critical introspection on the left. What have we actually done to address their issues? Not much, he says. He says we've been doing just the opposite. Here's just one tweet, an example of what Vash really objects to. Quote, men don't fall down the alt-right MRA pipeline because the left isn't doing good enough. They choose, that's in all caps, to subscribe to fascist ideology because they have an investment in maintaining their position in the social hierarchy. So, just so we're clear on the new rules, you can commit sociology to understand terrorists, but not teenage suburbanites. Those boys made their choice to stay on top of the social hierarchy. I called up Vosh to learn more about how we got these new rules and why we should break them. People like thinking of bad people as being sort of fundamentally, intrinsically, cosmically bad in ways that are sort of non-replaceable or transferable. We've had this conversation when it comes to Islamic terrorism, for example. ISIS rose as a response to instability that we produced in the Middle East through our behavior. And of course, this isn't a coincidence or an accident. This is because people are actually a lot more likely to join far-right terrorist groups if they have nothing to lose and if their family's been blown up by a U.S. drone strike. It makes sense if you think mm -hmm. about it for any length of time. Obviously, I don't think your average manosphere incel over here in the West is like uh, Boko Haram or, or Al-Qaeda or ISIS or anything else, though there are similarities in the way in which they're recruited, a feeling of dispossession, of masculine entitlement to a kind of heroic story that they feel they're no longer a part of, a feeling that they've been emasculated by another institution or that some kind of sexual or gender narrative has been taken from them, you know, like their right to a woman or to a, an idyllic life in a loving family. And they respond to that with very radical and very ineffective solutions. And we need to know what's causing it in order to deal with it. Total parallels, even like the sociological configurations of little cells of men kind of reminds me of um, like pickup artists, right? I mean, they kind of function in a similar way as these like terror cells did. But I don't know if I'm like misremembering this time or like looking at it with rose colored glasses, but I seem to remember all of the lefty sociologists like really holding their ground and saying like, you know, understanding the causes isn't forgiving it. But now I don't see as many people making those kinds of claims about like manosphere people, except for like maybe you and a few others. Like it, it seems like at least the left is like a little bit more cautious of, of making this kind of intellectual case. I think it's because it's considered more distasteful. I'm borrowing sort of from the biases that I see in, in other people on the left. I've seen a lot of people on the left. They're very willing 
to extend, I would say, an abstract hand of charitability, of reform, of understanding, of reconciliation to people who have done some really bad stuff. We take a look at ISIS, you know, and I don't think we have sympathy for ISIS, but I think there's like a, okay, well, you're a victim of Western imperialism, of these campaigns, your family has been killed. I do not agree with what you have done, but I understand, you know, and there's something intellectual about that. You feel smarter than, say, the U.S. federal government, but we're less likely to extend that kind of charitability to people who engage in relatively petty and much more personal kinds of, of harm against us. For example, I don't think most people would be willing to think of that as a guy they meet at a party who's callous and sexist towards them. You know, if there's like a chick and meets a guy and the guy's just a, a just really rude to her and obviously sexist, I don't think the woman's going to go away from that thinking, you know, oh, well, I don't agree with his behavior, but, you know, I do sort of respect and, and have awareness of the sociological conditions that blah, blah, blah. No, because it, it just happened. It happened to <laughs> you. It, it was right there and he was mean and he was sexist and you're not going to like sociologize that and the manosphere stuff touches on patterns of behavior that we do see and experience every moment of our lives pretty much when yeah. we go online and deal with these people i don't talk to isis radicals online but i do talk to a lot of lonely guys who have decided to take it out on women that proximity i think yeah. makes us weirdly counterintuitively less sympathetic yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's like a tougher ask for someone to say, like, in principle, yes, I will th think we should sociologically understand terrorists. And like, yes, I think you should be like, affording all of this extraordinary sympathy to people that are like sexist to you, especially when they show like no sympathy towards other people around them, poor and marginalized and racialized communities to say like, afford them the kind of humanity that they're not affording other people. That's the tough ask, right? It's also a matter of perceived triviality, of course. Western imperialism, bombs, drones, those are big deals, you know? Yeah. Hundreds of billions spent on war. But for a lot of these guys, they're just virgins and mad about it. Yeah. <laughs> now, I want to be clear, by the way. Obviously, when we're talking about what motivates people to their behavior, this is like a descriptive undertaking. If you think a cause is trivial, you can think that. That doesn't alleviate our need to understand why it's happening. A little pebble in your shoe can cause you to tumble off a cliff, right? You don't stop at analyzing a problem because that seems minor. And while it is certainly the case that it is probably better to be an 18-year-old virgin than it is to be killed in a drone strike, I don't have the exact numbers on that, but I think that's <laughs> the case. In the minds of people who are going through problems we consider trivial, there is like a monster there. To people who really care about being an incel or about like being waylaid or feeling hopeless when it comes to women, that weighs on them. And it weighs on them a lot. And obviously, when it comes to the extent to which these problems affect their mental state, you know, if we see a consistent disproportional outsized effect on people's behavior based on what we consider relatively minor initial circumstances, well, then obviously, by definition, they're not minor. It just seems minor to us because we're not in that headspace and we should treat it as though it is. Yeah, point well taken. It's not really about sort of like ranking people's lived experience or the feeling of oppression and saying, well, this one is more worthwhile and this one is less worthwhile. Therefore, we should ignore. But like ideally, we should we should be trying to like alleviate everyone's anxieties and loneliness and their economic dislocation and all the other forces that are oppressing them. I guess one of the questions I had was like, why you? Why have you made this? I don't want to say that you're like the spokesman of this take. There are other people that say things like this. But when I started to look for other lefties, 
that made what I think is a pretty like self-evident, like obvious claim that we should try to understand these people to like better fight against this kind of ideology. I didn't find that many people making the claim. So I was curious as to why you found yourself here. I think a lot of people on the left consider it kind of passe because you are, they see it as a kind of legitimization mm -hmm. where by catering to their interests or trying to understand them, you're sort of placating or legitimizing them in some way, which I completely disagree with, you know, no more than I would think you're legitimizing like fundamentalist Islamic terrorism by making an effort to sort of alleviate the conditions by which it arises or understand how it is. You know, I, I think that's nonsensical. And I also think there's a difficulty because hmm, this gets me in trouble a little bit, but um, okay. Living as a man, is difficult in some ways and easy in some ways, I think, relative to the other options on the table. And one of the ways in which I think it's difficult is that we have an inconsistent idea of what it means to be a man in the modern world. We have a traditional understanding, which is, of course, very patriarchal, very authoritarian, very strong, silent, keep your emotions in, that kind of stuff, you know. And then we have a more like modern interpretation of what it means to be a man, which is to deviate from those behaviors in some but not all ways. We still like it when men are big and strong hegemonically, culturally, interpersonally, that is still a popular trait. Assertiveness is considered attractive, but assertiveness in the wrong way is considered creepy. A lot of guys fear being called creepy over stuff that I think mm -hmm. a lot of women get away with easily because people don't see a innate social threat with women's behavior, at least not often. And all of this together, I think, means that a lot of people are having a kind of crisis of identity. And there are not many roads out of this. You see the Manosphere Road, where it's like society hates you, feminism has ruined women. The only way to overcome this is to focus on the grind, you know, focus on, don't care about women, make money, you know, whatever. Not a good idea, I think, for the mental health in the long run. And a lot of these people, you know, they're not going to make money just because you tell them to. This doesn't solve their problems. But a lot of the lefties' attitudes towards this is like, a, well, you'll be more happy if you just check your privilege, reconcile the problematic aspects of your behavior and, you know, sort of detoxify yourself, get rid of the toxic masculinity. This is incredibly patronizing, obviously. Being less toxically masculine doesn't make you more confident, make you more happy with yourself. It maybe means you're less likely to lash out at yourself and others when certain conditions take place. But it's possible that for a lot of these guys, anger is actually a cathartic outlet, in which case simply removing that actually creates more problems mm -hmm. to their mental health and makes them feel like they have no outlet. The solution is synthesis. You have to find ways to promote positive masculinity, not just talk down the toxic elements. And the left struggles with this because I think a lot of them consider it beneath them to have to give instruction on how men ought to behave in a way that is actually useful. What exactly does that look like for a left? Like, how do we sort of speak to these issues without like ceding any kind of ideological ground and, and sticking to the principles? Because we're not talking here about like abandoning feminism or anything like that. We're just talking about like speaking to a people before they go down the rabbit hole of like far right uh, manosphere bros. I, the main thing I think you need is to teach confidence and self-reliance in ways that are actually positive. And the thing that's difficult about teaching confidence, you know, this is pickup artistry fundamentally. I have talked on stream before, oh, if you're at a party, you know, here are some ideas maybe on, on how you can approach these conversations. But the critical difference, you know, is that you don't want to foster the, the development of a kind of like checklist to run through. You want to give people basic tools to respect the people they're talking to enough 
that they know when what they're doing is getting them social accolades. I think that's literally like step one. A lot of these guys in the manosphere can't even talk to women. They're terrified of them. <laughs> that is so true. That is so true. One of the questions I had in seeing some of your takes is like, can this be veering a little too far into left bashing? And I say that because in this episode uh, that I'm producing, we also are talking to folks with QAnon Anonymous who are doing this series on the Man Clan. And I talked to Annie Kelly and I sort of said, you know, what should the left do? And she's like, yeah, that's all a good point. But, you know, when she was doing her PhD, talking to all these like far right manosphere people, every time she ran into somebody who had left the movement, they were essentially a socialist. And they had a story about someone on the left talking to them. And so she came to the conclusion, I actually think we are actually doing a little bit, maybe not enough, but we're doing stuff. I don't think there's a total absence from the left in, in terms of responding to it. I think that there are, there are two points to this. I think one of them is that there is on the left, an assumption that the only way to get these guys out of the position that they're in is to move them over to another radical ideology to fill the same hole in their chest that the Manosphere stuff did. Socialism is a wonderful thing. I believe in it. But I know a lot of people use radical ideologies as a way of giving themselves a drive and a purpose to distinguish themselves from others, to give them a sense of identity. This isn't necessarily bad, but it's also not the same as fixing the initial problems. It's just giving them a different set of tools to cope with them. I think that this is useful in tandem with other things. I think personally that people will gravitate towards positive ideologies if they start with a healthy mindset, if on a fundamental level, you know, you give them the tools to engage appropriately with their social setting, I think they're more likely to make those positive decisions. And I notice a lot of young people who get into socialism and do it out of a kind of contrarianism, whatever, we all start somewhere, but that's not the reason why people get into the manosphere stuff. It's not to be contrarian. It's because there's a deep underlying anxiety about them and their relationship with women. And I think that specifically needs to be targeted, not just through here's another thing that can give your life meaning, but through these ideas should be, at the face of it, they should be ridiculous. To you, you should see this and you should think, this does not work for me. This is a ridiculous set of solutions because I have this. And the this I want them to have is confidence, is social skills. That's interesting. So if I hear you correctly, like we should be starting basically just at the level of like pro-social uh, self-help, essentially, like how to just navigate as a young person who's a bit socially awkward and can't quite fit in and not like the level of sort of structural explanation, right? Because you could construct a kind of socialist answer to this, which I tend to do. It's like, okay, you're, you're feeling this kind of economic anxiety and dislocation because this sort of male breadwinner role that used to exist no longer is an option for you. And we're just trying to reckon with that kind of wreckage. Um, so you can kind of point to structure, whereas you're saying point to like just the, like, can they navigate their social world? Yeah, it's, I don't think a person should need to have like a socialist critical theory perspective on their own anxieties in order to overcome mm. or alleviate them. A lot of young people aren't going to become radicals. And I think that's fine, you know, as long as they don't go down the, the worst roads they could possibly take. Ideally, you would hit them with both. But there are a lot and I, you know, I don't mean to besmirch here, but there are a lot of people on the left who are kind of miserable, because... <laughs> 
as yeah. it turns out, having good politics has nothing to do with living a fulfilling life. They're actually completely separate things. <laughs> Jordan Peterson got famous, right? I mean, with his self-help stuff, which was laden, of course, with conservative propaganda. But at its face, it was about self-help. And understanding it from a critical perspective why you feel the way you do is not the same as not feeling that way. I think it's better to say to this person, you know, here's how you alleviate your anxiety, mm. than to say, this is why you're feeling that way. Not only because most people aren't just, just aren't that introspective to begin with. It takes time, I think, and education for many to, to get to that point, but also because that feeling is the core of their, their response, not their lack of an understanding of it. I see your point. I think one of the one of the tensions this has came up for me every single time I, I talk to other lefties about self-help, the kind of stock answer is that I'm not really sure there's a way to do it in a pro-social way because it has like an individuating aspect where like even in this conversation, we're talking about like people and their inner world and how they like learn to navigate as individuals on the playground or whatever. And I worry, like, is there a tension there? Are we actually, if we don't forefront, maybe not forefront, but at least include very quickly that kind of structural answer, we end up with like a new kind of just like lefty-ish Jordan Peterson, but it's still a manual, it's just 12 different rules. I disagree with the idea that self-help is very individualized. I actually think this is a really negative leftist tendency. The idea that, well, different things work differently for everyone. That's not true. There are a lot of things that work perfectly well for everyone, and most people don't do it. Exercise, properly regulating their diet and sleep schedule, making sure they go outside and get some vitamin D, doing their best to go to in real life, in-person social events and speak occasionally with people mm -hmm. uh, in a non-customer service setting. These are objective bits of advice. There are very few exceptions to them. And most people don't do them. It's like, yeah. this, it's, it's, this is why like talking with doctors is frustrating, right? You go to a doctor and you talk with them about your sleep issues and the doctor will be like, okay, what's your sleep schedule? And you'll be like, what, my what? My, what? And then it's like, well, they can't help you with any kind of medicine if there might be like 17 basic physiological <laughs> things you're messing up. Do you do any exercise? What? Do you go outside? What? Like, so I think that basic lessons on confidence, social engagement for young men, I think have almost universal applicability. No kidding. Yeah. As a veritable self-hating leftist who can't get up on time, I think this is all a good good advice I should, <laughs> I should heed. I wanted to go back to kind of like the left responsibility and maybe make like a bit of a finer point on that like who in particular is responsible and i have in mind especially like seeing some women respond to the feed and obviously like people that are essentially like denying their existence or are like rank sexists we shouldn't really expect women to be the one showing that sort of humanity and carefully sociologizing their history like are we asking men to take this kind of responsibility to talk to other men are we talking asking women as well or everyone i think people should do it if they feel they can do a good job and overwhelmingly men will be the ones who can do a better job not because their arguments are better but because the kinds of people that we're talking to will feel talked down to if a woman is the one giving them advice i know for a fact that when i was 14 15 if a woman twice my age had been like, hey, listen, here are some things you can do to be better with, but I wouldn't have listened to her. I mean, why would I be expected to, you know, no matter how much life experience she has? Well, I suppose she could have been in my shoes at some point, but she probably hasn't been. I don't think people have a responsibility to pursue this kind of rhetoric if they 
don't have a hand on it. I do think they have a responsibility to not hamper others when they pursue that rhetoric, which is what I've seen a lot of. You know, when I when I get right. my hot takes on Twitter, I get people who are accusing me of being a rape apologist for saying that we should like try to talk to incels or that I hate women or whatever. Unfortunately, I get in trouble for saying this too, but it's it's unfortunately true, and I refuse to let the deep state silence me. There are a lot of people who just hate men on the left. That hate is not very socially consequential in the long term. It's certainly not an institutional force like patriarchy, white supremacy, whatever else, but it exists and it clouds people's judgment. Men are, after all, very annoying. If you've ever been on <laughs> Grindr, and I have, and if you've dated men, and I have, you would know that they're quite a hassle to deal with. And interpersonal experiences with men, particularly for victims of sexual assault by men, I think often have a predisposition towards wariness towards them. I don't think that's wrong. I don't think that's unjustifiable. I do think that making political decisions based off of that bias, however, can really hamper an effort to address a serious social problem. Last question, Vash. I just, I wonder, is there a risk that someone is listening to me or is listening to you and is saying, like, are we being just like a little too easy on these men? Or why are we fixating on these men when a lot of them like deny the humanity of other less privileged people? Why harp on, you know, the oppressed young boys, most of which are probably middle class or upper middle class. And at the end of the day, even though they're kind of weird now, and it's kind of acting out in pathological ways, they'll be fine. So is this really our hill to die on? I don't think we have the luxury of making that choice. Leaving aside the fact that they're people and they deserve to live happy, fulfilling lives, even if that means some effort has to be expended on them, we're also talking about the bedrock of like the modern far-right movement. Andrew Tate went from having essentially no prominence to having a galactic, like international leader of the right level of prominence entirely by being a misogynist. That is insane. People can bemoan the unfairness of having to take this group of people seriously if they want, but that doesn't change the descriptive fact that if we don't, there will continue to be problems, potentially severe ones, after all. Sexually frustrated, identity-waylaid young men are, after all, the bedrock of fascism in almost every country where fascist movements have developed. But for two, also, from a purely humanitarian perspective, a person being white or upper middle class or kind of annoying online <laughs> doesn't mean they're any less deserving of living a happy life, especially if the way in which they could live a happy life would be to make them less annoying <laughs> online. They're potentially valuable allies. They're people who deserve to have a good life. And I... And I do feel for a lot of them. Not all of them are Andrew Tate Sims. A lot of these people are just really sad and have no hope that their life will turn out the way that, say, their parents did. They look at their father and they see their father, presumably, married and had kids. And they live in a house, a lot of them, especially if they are middle or upper middle class. And they realize that due to changing economic circumstances and social circumstances, they may never have the privilege for getting to live the life that is supposed to be the template archetypal American dream and people can go in a lot of different directions after that one. The right has been carving a path for them. They've been carving a, a slip and slide that mm -hmm. they have been, you know, greasing the wheels of. They, they, this is a well-manufactured road. And you can bemoan the triviality of a 14-year-old's concerns all you want. But if that's the road that was built for them, I think we have an obligation to build them a better one. That was Vosh. You can find his work at vosh.gg. That's V-A-U-S-H. I didn't want to just leave us with left bashing, so after our chat, I did look up some people who were doing this kind of work. And they are out there. 
Here's just a few examples. Let's look at the world of mixed martial arts. That's, of course, the world that Andrew Tate came out of. MMA is full of megatypes, but there is, in fact, a growing number of socialist gyms and boxing clubs. We are seeing a new commitment to fighting fascism in fighting and to making these male-dominated spaces safer for women and non-binary folks. I found out about all of this from the podcast Southpaw. Southpaw covers MMA from a left perspective. And if you look in other male-dominated spaces, in other sports or in video games, even in gun clubs, you're going to find similar things. Pretty much any male-dominated space does in fact have some lefties pushing back and speaking directly to other guys. But still, you do have to go looking pretty hard for this kind of stuff. So I guess positives for sure, but I remain a little ambivalent. If there is one group of people, though, that is consistently doing this work, it is teachers. They are on the front lines of trying to save boys before they fall into these far-right traps. That means good sex education. That also just means good advice. Some teachers have even started organizations that share resources. You might want to check out the group Men at Work, which I will link in the show notes. In the end, if you want to support de-radicalizing young boys, I think my best piece of advice is simply this. Support your local teachers union. I want to take a minute to tell you about one of my favorite journalists and social critics, the late, great Barbara Ehrenreich. Her most famous book is Nickel and Dimed, and that book is about trying to survive on the poverty line. Ehrenreich is also a titan of feminist organizing, especially in healthcare. Annie Kelly from QAnon Anonymous clued me into one of her lesser-known books. It's called The Hearts of Men. The Hearts of Men came out in 1983. Annie and her co-host Julian are talking about it on an upcoming episode, but for our purposes, let me just sum up the book right here, because I think it actually really helps us understand how we got to this new manosphere. Hearts of Men is an extraordinary and surprising book of feminist theory. Actually, it's more a theory of masculinity. The basic argument of Hearts of Men is this. It was actually men who gave up their traditional patriarchal roles. First of all, I just want to show our viewers the book he was talking about. It's from 20 years ago, The Hearts of Men. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what the basis for this book was what? Well, I was responding to what you heard so often in the, in the 70s and still hear some today that the women's movement was undermining the family, that women's liberation was anti-family and making women want to leave their husbands and so on. And what I wrote about was, uh, you know, really the male revolt against the family showing that it went back earlier than, than Betty Friedan and feminism, was uh, this idea of, uh, coming from men, Hugh Hefner among them, but many others, saying, why should we support women? Why should we be breadwinners? You know, keep your money for yourself and have a good time, guys. And it makes a certain amount of sense if you think about it. Because while it might have been a comparatively good deal to be a patriarch, it still wasn't a great deal. Ehrenreich has a kind of ambivalent sympathy for this male revolt. Because you have to remember, the stultifying life of straight-laced, stiff upper lip, work-till-you-drop 1950s America is just not something we want to celebrate. But at the same time, the male rebellion was not channeled into some healthy new idea of gender. 
If there was a king of their rebellion, it was Hugh Hefner of Playboy. Playboy was not just a magazine. It was an answer to post-war conformity. They offered an exciting new lifestyle. You could even go to a Playboy club and you could live out the Playboy lifestyle. It's an attempt as much as possible to uh, kind of bring to life the concept of uh, relaxed urban living, good food and drink, uh, pretty girls, uh, good entertainment. Ehrenreich says that this was basically a program for male rebellion. And the program was simply this. Work, make a lot of money, spend it on yourself. Not the boring life of a two-car garage, wife and kids in the suburbs. Later on, the economics change, and that breadwinning role isn't even feasible for most men. So men can't return to the two-car garage in the suburbs, even if they wanted to. At best, they can compensate with the little luxuries of a nice cocktail in a tiny apartment. Where does this all leave women? Out in the lurch. Of course, Ehrenreich, the socialist feminist, is not longing for the old arrangement. She is not calling for a return to breadwinner and housewife. She is calling for a robust social safety net that would help us break oppressive sex roles and not depend on them for our economic security. But we aren't there yet. So the upshot I take from her book is this. You cannot understand the politics of masculinity without understanding how masculinity is entangled with the political economic arrangement of the time. So let's try and do that. To help me track post-war masculinity with post-war political economy, I reached out to Nicholas Lehman. Lehman is a professor of journalism at Columbia University, and he is also staff writer for The New Yorker. His book, Transaction Man, tells the story of a few key intellectuals responsible for the rise and the fall of the post-war Fordist economy. So what does this have to do with Ehrenreich? Well, both Lehman and Ehrenreich devote a lot of attention to one sociologist, David Reisman. If there was an intellectual predecessor to what became Hefner's male revolt, it was Reisman, especially his book, The Lonely Crowd. That is where we begin our story. This is a book that I hadn't really heard of till a few weeks ago, but it was enormously popular. Yeah, you're too young to have heard of it. (laughs) When did you first hear of it? I think when I was in high school. This book is not like an easy, popular read. It's not like reading, you know, that book by Harari on the big ideas that shape the world. It's very thick, dense book that has no characters and not much of a storyline. But for some reason, it absolutely captured the imagination of the country. David Reisman was on the cover of Time magazine back when that was a huge deal. And um, just seemed like everybody had read the book or at least knew about the book. You know that Bob Dylan song, I Shall Be Released? Yep. Glad you're not too young to have known. No, no, I've I've heard that song like thousands of times. I'm a real like Dylan head. Okay, so you know that that song refers to the lonely crowd in the lyrics. Down here next to me in this lonely crowd, there's a man who swears he's not to blame. 
I had no idea that that's what it was referring to when I when I heard that song. And when you when you wrote about that, I was it, yeah, I was like, whoa, how many uh, like sociologists? Or I guess he's actually a law professor, which is an interesting point. But how many how many of them are quoted in Dylan songs? What were the arguments of the book, and and what arguments did it marshal for its central thesis? The central argument is there are two kinds of people essentially, and those are interdirected and other directed. Interdirected people have their own light shining within and they kind of, what they do in life is determined by what they want to do. And other directed people are directed toward pleasing others. So, you know, in Reisman's world, I don't think I'm being unfair to him. Interdirected, good. Other directed, bad. And his main argument was that the United States, our national character, had really shifted from being primarily interdirected to primarily other directed. And this was an alarming thing that he was calling our attention to. So these people, these outer directed folks, this is sort of like a fear of conformity. Yes. Conformity is the big negative word for the classic sort of mainstream 1950s liberal, mm. including Reisman, is that's what that's what people felt was the sort of sickness at the core of American society, and the problem that had to be overcome. And this is basically a problem of what now looks a little quaint, but it's a problem of affluence, right? Like post-war Fordist, the social compact, the big corporations that afforded people their economic stability, but also was kind of creatively stifling. Is that fundamentally what's being responded to here? Yeah. I mean, I I would say another useful cultural reference is Mad Men, which I assume you've seen. The guy who did Mad Men clearly has read, there's a whole shelf of these books. Some of them are fiction, some of them are nonfiction, some are journalism, some are social science. But they're all kind of in the same, you know, fear of conformity lane. The movies, too, The Man in the Gray Flannel Suit, which looks like a Porto Madman. You don't expect to be with the Foundation forever, do you? Well, of course not. But you've got to admit it's an absolutely safe spot. All right, then. What about this? We sell Grandma's house and, and this house, too, and, and we get us a nice house in a nice neighborhood. Look, honey, don't you understand? I'm sorry, Tommy. You know how I hate this house, but you don't know how much I hate it. it it's ugliness. It, it's depression. But most of all, it, it's defeat. Don't you feel that at all? Well, it's not exactly a palace. It's a graveyard, Tommy. A graveyard of everything we used to talk about. Yeah, and that was based on a novel by the same name. Mm-hmm. By, by a writer named Sloan Wilson. What I'd say are two you know, big items on the list are one is the rise of the corporation as at the time a a kind of lifetime employer for a lot of both white collar and blue collar Americans. I should say white male, white collar and blue collar Americans, but a lot of those kinds of people. It felt really new, this phenomenon of somebody who would say go to college and then or go to high school and then sign on with US Steel or Procter and Gamble or IBM or General Motors and then it was assumed they just stay with that company for their whole life that have a sort of de facto tenure 
they might be moved around a lot and relocated by the corporation. The corporation was kind of the center of their life. They would stay until they retired at age 65, and then they'd get a gold watch. That was a fairly new or quite new phenomenon in American life as a sort of typical middle-class experience. And it seemed, I'd say, probably great to a lot of people who actually worked for these corporations, which is why they did it. But it seemed alarming to somebody like David Reisman. So that's number one. And number two is the growth of the suburbs. Suburbs were around for, you know, depending on how you define it, since commuter trains were invented in the early 20th century. But there was this you know, tremendous mass movement to the suburbs after the Second World War, partly because of the GI Bill. That was seen as alarming. And the, the two sort of went together. This is what you get in William White's book, The Organization Man, from a few years after The Lonely Crowd, but very influenced by The Lonely Crowd, is kind of the modal American, the typical American, was now a family living in the suburbs with a bunch of kids, this is the baby boom era, housewife at home, husband puts on his suit, hat, briefcase, and goes on a commuter train or drives to his corporate employer downtown and then comes home at the end of the day. As you say, clearly not a vision that was universally accessible. But for people that had this kind of problem of affluence, it is kind of quaint to look back now in a period of tremendous economic precarity and to realize that the the like overriding intellectual and cultural anxiety was about how oppressive having, you know, a two-car garage in the suburbs was. In a secure job. Yeah, in a secure job, with secure tenure. Like, wow, I think at this point, a lot of us would sign up for that. Another sort of touchstone in this is a film that, that you bring up in your article. One of my favorites, the, the Billy Wilder film, The Apartment. Oh, yeah, what a great film. I work on the 19th floor. Ordinary Policy Department, Premium Accounting Division, Section W, Desk Number 861. My name is C.C. Baxter, C for Calvin, C for Clifford, however most people call me Bud. I've been with Consolidated for three years and ten months, and my take-home pay is $94.70 a week. You know, famous for, like, the opening scenes where you see them walking through, like, endless, endless rows of those desks with the fluorescent lights. It looks like, okay, you're just living as a corporate drone, but then he'll do whatever whatever he can possibly do to sort of climb his way up the corporate ladder, even if it means basically renting out uh, his apartment at no, at no cost and then sleeping on the street while his bosses cheat on their wives. Uh, fantastic film. I very often stay on at the office and work for an extra hour or two, especially when the weather is bad. It's not that I'm overly ambitious, it's just a a way of killing time until it's all right for me to go home. You see, I have this little problem with my apartment. And in the film, it's sort of embedded in the film that all the guys are probably, or actually are probably living in the suburbs. Yes. So the wife and family are off somewhere and they can sort of do whatever they want with uh, young unmarried women in the office, much of which would today be viewed as assault and nobody was any the wiser for it. It's a big question, but why do you think if this sort of anxiety over conformity was an overriding fascination of intellectual and cultural elites, what made it so? Why, why did this happen? Why was this the big preoccupation? 
Does the name Frederick Jackson Turner mean anything to you? Uh, is a historian or something? Yeah, so yeah. he was, you know, a historian of the American West. Mm -hmm. And his heyday was late 19th, early 20th century. He taught at University of Wisconsin, then Harvard. His famous contribution was the so-called frontier thesis. And in the, and this, all of his work has been just wildly revised and discredited by later historians. But his idea was that if you wanted to really understand America, you had to understand the open frontier was where the American character was formed, right? So anybody could just pick up and go out to the frontier and establish a homestead. And then in 1890, he noticed that the U.S. Census was no longer tracking where the frontier was because there wasn't an unoccupied frontier. And he famously predicted this will usher in a big change in the American character. So he was incredibly, incredibly influential. Just as a tiny example, you know, John F. Kennedy called his administration the new frontier. That's explicitly a, a, a reference to Frederick Jackson Turner and this idea that we had to somehow do something to reestablish the frontier because that was the heart of the American character. So what could we do in the modern age? And Kennedy was running as essentially the antithesis of the other directed corporate conformist drone. You know, that was his sort of brand in 1960, right? So the reason I mentioned that is that a lot of these people thought, rightly or wrongly, that the key to American culture was, if not the frontiersman, a figure you see, you know, and this is a person who we, most historians would now call a settler colonialist and not a frontiersman, but you, you start seeing the frontiersman in early 19th century fiction, and it just keeps going and going and going. And so there's this idea that the frontiersman, the small farmer, maybe the independent business person, shopkeeper, et cetera, the, the sort of Jeffersonian type, this is the real American. And all of this is like myth, but it was a very powerful myth that really took hold of people. So if the, the typical American becomes an employee, a lifelong employee in a suit and tie and a briefcase and a fedora of a very large organization in a giant office, like the apartment, you're already in trouble in this view, because that's not what America is, you know, that's a national crisis. Mm. And so that I think caused the alarm and people a generation older than me, my parents' generation, I, you know, they often talk to me about, you weren't an adult then, and it, there really was a lot of conformity, at least among some middle-class white people. And there was a lot of intolerance for anything expressive, anything different. Everybody was supposed to be the same, ethnicity, race, all those things weren't respected. You know, so there was something going on there. Do you think that there was anything to the case? I mean, yes, I kind of quaint that their issue is is an issue of affluence, but to your point, a time of extreme repressiveness and a real stifling culture. What better indictment of capitalism if at the height of its powers for a certain class of people, even them, were dissatisfied by it? 
I mean, yes, I'm sure there was something there and every social order has its flaws and I'm sure. Now, Daniel Bell, another sociologist or sort of self-appointed sociologist, because he started out as a journalist, a little younger generation than Reisman, but a great analyst of American society. He wrote a wonderful book some years later making kind of the opposite argument of what you were saying. It's called The Cultural Contradictions of Capitalism. And he said, basically, capitalism is this term creative destruction that Joseph Schumpeter invented. And that's the, co the core of capitalism. It destroys communities. Mm -hmm. It doesn't build excessive community kind of ethos. It, does, it breaks things apart. It doesn't put things together. There have been many different capitalisms through American history that were dominant. So I'd say this was a critique. Reisman and his group's critique was a critique of a kind of capitalism that existed at that time that doesn't exist anymore. You know, what kind of was destroyed in the 1970s and 80s, and that's a whole other story. Mm -hmm. A kind of capitalism that fundamentally was was an unstable consensus, an unstable social compact that was constantly under attacks. It looked stabler than it really was. Absolutely. So I want to ask you about the manosphere and the men's rights movement. I know this it's sort of a circuitous route that we're taking, but I came across this book also in another book called The Hearts of Men by Barbara Ehrenreich. Right. And... Erin Reich, very interestingly, also begins her book at The Lonely Crowd and basically argues that even though Reisman was, uh, in pretext was like he was using non-gendered language, this is about people, not necessarily men, she makes a pretty convincing case that this is like coded gendered language, that men are who she's talking about and men are essentially feeling emasculated and all of the traits of Outer directedness at that time were coded as feminine and all of the traits of inner directedness, like the yeoman farmer, or the frontiersman that you mentioned earlier, are coded as masculine. So the lonely crowd is really a crisis of emasculation that men at that time revolted from and liberated themselves from. What do you make of that case and how did Reisman deal with questions of gender? He didn't explicitly in that book, which is by far his best known book. You know, at the end of his long life, he became a pretty active anti-feminist. So I suppose in some ways that supports Barbara Ehrenreich. And his last sort of public act that he was well known for was opposing, he testified as a witness, and I don't this would have been in the 1980s, I guess, for Virginia Military Institute when they were being sued to admit women. And he was defending, you know, that they should be men only. So I find her analysis persuasive, and I do think there's something in his mind sort of feminized or unmanned about the idea of being the outer directed person. Mm -hmm. In The Organization Man, which is 1958, and that's a journalistic work that's in a, about a specific place, Park Forest, Illinois, a new suburb of Chicago, as I reread reread that, there is this sort of tone of, you know, one of the alarming things is the men go off on the commuter train to Chicago, and then the whole town is women, women, and more women. Women run it. Women control everything, and and 
there's some sort of unacknowledged sense that there's something not quite right about that. And then these imaginary good old days of the frontiersman and the farmer and, you know, the man would kind of be around because the workplace was the home and, and he could sort of assert authority. And in terms of the manosphere, which I do not know that much about, it, it's, you know, just visually, the visual signs and signifiers are, you're not going to find me in a suit and tie, you know, with carrying a briefcase. It's all like displaying secondary sexual characteristics, tattoos, wife beater shirts. You know, it's kind of not looking the part of the other directed person. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's a connection. I think you hit it. It sounds like you're describing some of these folks, uh, even if you don't know them. Like there's a guy named Liver King who essentially like, you know, doesn't wear a shirt, wears like furs, eats testicles and like, yeah, right. you know, like uber masculine pump full of steroids, but, but an imagined kind of past of virile masculinity. So I wanted to end on what is a bookend really to the lonely crowd. I mean, you draw an analogy f- with Putnam's Bowling Alone, um, Robert Putnam, another enormously influential and successful and perhaps surprisingly so because it's a a dense book of statistics, basically. But for people who don't know, just kind of a brief encapsulation. I mean, what what was Bowling Alone and what kind of influence did it have? You know, his argument is that there was a time, roughly speaking, when Putnam himself was growing up, which was during this 1950s period of other directedness, when there was a much richer community life. He called it Bowling Alone because he came across a statistic about falling membership in bowling leagues. And then he got a bunch of other statistics, falling membership in parent-teacher associations, Kiwanis, you know, veterans organizations, all those kinds of things that you have a picture of people doing on Wednesday nights in towns all over America. And he said, you know, all this stuff is just kind of disappearing and that's alarming. So he was almost exactly the opposite of Reisman's concern, but his concern caught on just as much as Reisman's concern. (laughs) Because the way I would put it is, we were well into the neoliberal era, and so there was a different set of problems. That corporate world had been dismantled. And so his complaint was, we're not conformist enough, or at least we're not socially organized enough, and we're too individualistic, not were not individualistic enough. I think he would have liked, he didn't use this terminology, but I think he would, he was calling and he has repeatedly throughout his career for more other directedness and less inner directedness. What's kind of the general take? I mean, is he right? Is he wrong? Or the other take I've seen is sort of like, well, he's right, but for the wrong reasons, or he doesn't quite have this sort of structural explanation for the breakdown of sociality and social capital that he's that he's looking at. What's your take generally on on the book and the article? I'm a long-running, respectful Putnam skeptic. Humans are social animals, and they form groups, and they're fundamentally not individualistic. So if you see a decline in social activity, you're just looking in the wrong place. So my overall thought would be, it's not like these forms of, of 
social organization that he highlighted in Bowling Alone haven't declined, but I think they've been they've declined and been replaced by other things. Mm. And he just wasn't looking in the right places. And you know, the obvious thing is they're they're meeting online, which they are. Now, Putnam and Putnam followers would say, yeah, but they're not meeting face to face and they're not in the same community and they're not forming social capital, which he feels is essential as a sort of geographically located thing. For me, it, it seems like a book that is like more right for the wrong reasons. It's hard to, I mean, maybe this is just me projecting, but it's hard to deny the level of like atomization and loneliness that people are feeling. And I think that like in a, in a recent article in, in Jacobin, you know, it was entitled From Bowling Alone to Posting Alone. And I think it does help explain a lot of the way that these like young isolated men are being kind of finding new sociality, I guess, online in the manosphere. Maybe they're not alone, but if there is like a crisis of atomization or isolation for some people, or maybe it's, you know, that it's just sort of being placated by social media, but would there be a way to, to rebuild a healthy sociality? Like if we have Putnamite concerns, do we necessarily have to accept the Putnamite prescriptions or, or long for the world of David Reisman? Well, yeah. So, I mean, I think both Reisman and Putnam don't think about economics enough. And in particular, they don't think about political economy enough. Now, that's definitely not the case with Barbara Ehrenreich. But my argument and my last book called Transaction Man, which is a kind of play on organization man, tries to argue this, that the social phenomena that Reisman was witnessing in William White, who wrote The Organization Man, was one that had been created by the interaction between economic forces, government policy, and economic institutions like big corporations. And the world that Putnam was alarmed by, ditto, was deeply shaped by these same interactions going in a different direction. You know, so he wrote a very moving book about this small town in Ohio, Putnam did, where he had grown up and revisiting it and seeing, you know, this picture of deterioration. But, you know, this is the same area where a lot of jobs got shipped overseas because of, you know, globalization and free trade. And he just doesn't credit those kinds of things. And so he doesn't tend to propose, and neither did Reisman, a government policy, particularly economic policy and, and sort of regulatory and tax policy as solutions to the problem. Which leads me back to to close here on the manosphere and the, the men's rights sort of folks that we're seeing online more and more. They similarly, uh, even though structural explanations are often like hitting them in the face um, or you think, you know, a slight push could lead you towards realizing them, they eschew that reality over and over and over and over again. And I wonder if we just need to kind of mention it, like your, your crisis of masculinity is the crisis of like, you know, 40 years of economic policy or longer that has like destroyed your notions of masculinity and you're trying to deal with the wreckage psychologically, but maybe try structurally. Yeah. It's always hard to do that in politics yeah. <laughs> because people culture is much more visible to people than, you know, economic 
especially kind of B2B economics, if you will, business to business, antitrust policy, regulatory policy, industrial policy. These are not things that people see. They see when the plant left and went to China, but they also see the men you're talking about see sort of cultural feminism everywhere that they look, and that's kind of in their face in a way that economic arrangements aren't so much. So wrapping up here now, we know where our story began. In the 1950s, affluent men lashed out at the stultifying conformity of Fordism. Perhaps they won their freedom, but did they get a better deal? I don't think so. I think stability was replaced by instability, family life with isolation, civic engagement with posting. Some people just want to go back now, but we can't, and I wouldn't even want to if we could. Then there's the hardcore manosphere types. They're also lashing out against this new economic order, just like Reisman and Hefner once did. But their rebellion is even more troubling because it is all hustle, it is all dog-eat-dog, and it is all get-up-and-grind. And I think the reason is this. Even for the privileged guys, Hefner's lazy life of leisure just is not economically possible anymore. Perhaps one day we will see that individual male rebellion is never going to be enough. We have to all come together, not just the men, and write ourselves a radical new future. No one man can do that, though, no matter how much raw liver he eats. Thanks to Nicholas Lehman, professor of journalism and dean emeritus at Columbia University School of Journalism. His book again is Transaction Man, The Rise of the Deal and the Decline of the American Dream. More recently, he has an article in the journal Social Research looking at David Reisman and the Lonely Crowd. I will link both of those things in the show notes. And that's it for this week's episode of Darts and Letters. If you like what you heard, support us on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. We are a production of Cited Media, and we were produced today by Jake Coburn, Ren Bangert, and me, Gordon Caddick. As always, our theme song and outro was composed by Mike Barber, and our graphic designs are by Dakota Coop. This episode also received support from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. It's part of a new mini-series that we're doing that looks at the radical imagination. The scholarly leads are Professors Alex Kosnabish at Mount St. Vincent University and Max Haven at Lakehead University. They are both providing research support and consulting to this series. Thanks for listening. Check back in in two weeks. 